Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'll be talking with Malik Gotcham about his recent book, The Old Regime and the Haitian Revolution. Malik, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Dan, for having me. It's a delight. Um, so your book uh, looks at the long legal history uh, around slavery in the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue, um, up to that colony's revolution, which is ultimately successful and creates the modern state of, of Haiti. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how you came to this project, especially because you have a legal background yourself. And so what were the origins of this study? Um, I started it when I was a graduate student uh, at Stanford. And at the time, I thought I was going to study the French Revolution in old regime France. And I think what first attracted me to the subject um, was that I wanted to study an, uh, what I thought was an aspect at the time of the French Revolution that um, hadn't yet been the subject of a great deal of scholarship. Um, that's to say, I wanted to kind of look to see where the French Revolution traveled and find some sort of hidden, unexplored corner. Um, <clears throat> and Saint-Domingue wasn't entirely unexplored at the time. There had been a few works, but but very little. This is uh, the early 90s, I would say, when I first really began getting interested in this. And since then, there's been this huge explosion of uh, of work, and it's really become a subject in its in its own right. And so I, I no longer think about it in the way that I did when I first got interested in the subject, which is to say as a, a sort of margin of the French Revolution. I think of it now as a subject in its own right. And a lot of my thinking about the subject really kind of evolved from a kind of center-periphery framework to one that sort of took Saint-Domingue and the Haitian Revolution as sort of entities, localities, problems in their own right. Um, and I think that's the basic orientation now of uh, of, of of Haitian uh, uh, and of Haitian revolutionary studies. But so, but so I would say there was there was a bit of a romantic kind of uh, inspiration at the very beginning in the sense of kind of unpacking this this unexplored corner of the French Revolution. And you know, it's interesting to trace the scholarship on the subject. Um, it, it it is sort of treated in in some of the early works as you know here is um, here is Here's another chapter of the French Revolution that you should know about um, versus versus today, as I was saying earlier, here's here's a subject in its own right. And it really does now constitute a, you know, really a really um, blossoming uh, field of Caribbean history. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting is that you combine both this French legal perspective with the colonial legal perspective and also just the generalities around slavery. And that might be a good place to start off. Um, so. You really describe kind of the tensions in keeping a slave society going, especially one like Saint-Domingue, which uh, in the 18th century is the most profitable slave society in the world, um, has perhaps the largest enslaved population in the world. Um, so what is what are the central tensions in keeping that society just running effectively from a kind of economic standpoint? Well, um, I mean, the, the legal the legal orientation to this was, was uh, just to circle back for a moment, Dan, to your first question, was also part of my um, initiation into the field because it was the figure Moreau de Saint-Marie, who's a, a key figure in in, um, in in this area, who had compiled the first major archive of, of Saint-Domingue, and that became integrated into the French colonial archives. Um, who was the person who kind of got got me got me going on the subject? And I started working through his his collections of, of uh, primary documents and some of his own writings about Saint Domingue. Um, and it's through those documents that, as you say, I began to understand what some of the kind of the underlying dynamics of this slave society were. Um, and the the two that I'm most interested in, um, although it you know it it, it really is a, a selection of two among uh, several 
dynamics that one could uh, focus on were manumission and planter brutality. Um, because it was these that seemed to trigger a, an enormous um, degree of interest on the part of administrators, and therefore one presumes also on the part of the planters who are governed by these administrators uh, in terms of how, how you handle a society that was so racially, if you will, imbalanced. Um, use the word imbalanced, you know, with, with a grain of salt there, but um, really a society in which the Code Noir was developed uh, to, uh, at a time when um, you know, there weren't many more slaves than there were whites and, uh, and free people of color, uh, eventually comes to govern a society in which the, the disproportion between whites and slaves is, is enormous, you know, roughly 30,000 30, to 500,000 by, uh, by the end of the old regime. And so the Code Noir has a notion that, that these two uh, issues, manumission and, um, and the disciplining of slaves, are going to be um, things to keep an eye on if you're an administrator sort of overseeing this whole operation. Um, because there are articles that address these, these questions, torture, um, under what conditions can a, can a planter free his slave. And, and really the story of the Code Noir is, is in a sense it's about overcoming understanding that a single uh, legislation is not going to be sufficient in order to address all of the issues that are going to crop up over the course of the century. And so the Code Noir gets supplemented, it gets revised, modified. Um, there are lots of individual judicial decisions uh, and regulations that kind of get added to it over the course of the 18th century so that it becomes the document that, you know, we know today as the Code Noir, uh, <clears throat> or that, as it was understood in the 18th century, the general law of slavery of, of the French Empire. Um, but those are, those are some of the key issues that, that pop up, and the book is really trying to take those two themes and trace their development um, until the moment at which they become sort of centerpieces of the revolutionary crisis in 17. 89 through the, through the 1790s. Well, it might be a good place to get into some of the details here around the Code Noir, and I apologize, there's a leaf blowing going on outside my door, so if it's a, if it's a little bit loud, that's because of that. Um, so just describe the intentions of the Code Noir. It's obviously a pretty central piece of legislation for Saint-Domingue and, and the French Empire. Um, uh, you don't deal with it in this book, but it, it really has a lot of influence on many slave regimes in the Americas. But, but what were the intentions of the Code Noir, kind of how did it come to pass, and then we can kind of get into what its legacy was over the course of the, the 17th and 18th centuries. Yeah, well, there, I mean, there's actually a, a good deal of literature on this by now. Vernon Palmer, who's a legal historian at Tulane, has written about um, the the origins of the Code Noir. It turns out that we have the uh, uh, the legislative history of the document to look at. It's in the archives in Aix-en-Provence. And so one of, the, one of the long fights over this is whether or not it was essentially Roman law-based, or did it, in, did it embody sort of local customs in the Caribbean that had sprung up in Martinique um, and, and other French colonies over the second half of the, of the 17th century. Um, and I talk a bit about that debate in the, uh, in the book, but I'm, I'm less interested in sort of the, the kind of strictly legal origins of the Code Noir than in, uh, again, kind of understanding sort of what is the ethos of the society that it's trying to govern. Um, and there you, you can see, just in terms of the law itself, that there's a, there's a set of articles that, that come out of this, this legislative preparation that are, that are trying to address um, uh, excessive um, battering of slaves by, uh, by planters. 
And they specifically note the fear that um, unless this is this is clamped down on, you're going to get something like a slave revolt happening in uh, in these uh, in these Caribbean uh, in, in these rising Caribbean societies. And so there's this there's this at once um, a, a kind of uh, uh, a versionary worry about you know what what to do if planners are left alone, but it's combined with an awareness that San Domingue is kind of this rising slave society. And that it needs a law that will permit it to expand commercially and sort of reach its full um, reach its reach its full potential. And so this this notion of the of the of the of the accroissement, the potential for the increase of this colony, is there from the very beginning. And it's really connected to how people think about the law, because they, as I say, they want a law that will permit commercial expansion. And the idea that is, in order to permit this process, you have to you have to govern the individuals who are kind of at the grassroots of, of, of the whole of the whole of the whole production process. So planters, slaves, free people of color, uh, but also overseers, uh, and you know, and many other and many other characters who are involved in this process. Um, and a similar kind of thing, you know, can be told with respect to manumission. There are a series of articles that um, that, that that look at how um, you know, if you per, if you permit a private planter to uh, to um, to to free his slave um, without any restriction, you know, what's that going to do to the to the racial dynamics and balances within the colony? And really, after the Code Noir is uh, implemented in 1685, that concern um, takes center stage for like maybe the first 20, 30 years uh, of uh, of San Domingue under royal control. So into the by the early 18th century, there's a realization that that aspect of the Code Noir. Um, has to change, and indeed they do change. I think in 1713 they they adopt a new ordinance on manumission um, that makes it much more difficult uh, to do. It's not just a, a sort of free option for um, for planters. So um, so you know I think that I think that um, you know there there are some sort of internal legal dynamics that are at work here, but um, I think from the very beginning the, the the jurists who are in charge of this process and the administrators. Um, Really, were thinking about law in terms of a a commercial project, um, and you know it's hard to say that one is sort of driving the other. I mean, they're sort of feeding back into each other at every moment. But I, I do think um, I do think that um, that it's important to really grasp this this uh, this aspiration for colonial greatness um, and expansion that you that you see in uh, late 17th early 18th century San Domingue. And that kind of reflects the geopolitical rivalries in the Caribbean. So, you know, there are the British colonies, there are the Dutch colonies, there, there's Spanish America. And France really, um, I think, sees an opportunity in Saint-Domingue for um, a real rival to, uh, to these, uh, these, these other, in some cases, older imperial powers. And the law of slavery gets kind of, gets kind of co-opted uh, into, those, into those rivalries and the, those ways of thinking about how to produce a successful colonial venture. So to get back to that point you made at the beginning about this tension between manumission and brutality that's really central to the Code Noir, um, one of the things that kind of made me think was, could you say that the, the plantation was not really a site of total uh, absolutism or autocracy in San Domingue? I mean, one of the things that stands out is that there's this real tension between the planters who want to exert as much control as they can over their enslaved people um, versus administrators that want to see, again, just the commercial operations continue without too many problems. They don't want to see 
uh, maybe an overly large free population of color that could complicate that. They don't want to see enslaved rebels that are going to, to rise up because it's just too brutal. Um, so, so how much autocracy does a planter have? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer. Um, effectively, as a matter of day-to-day social control over, over, over uh, the slave populations of a particular plantation, um, pretty much close to total. Um, very little, very little sense in which you know the royal administration could kind of insert itself into an individual plantation uh, and actually uh, you know prevent a master from doing A, B, or C to to one of his slaves. So as a matter of day-to-day plantation governance, the, the code noir um, really is a dead letter. But there's a difference between saying that um, and saying that the code noir is a dead letter in general. Um, in other words, there's, there's another level of colonial administration that is that is going on alongside of the day-to-day um, management of the plantations, and um, and that's the level that you actually see reflected in the colonial records. Um, and what what it really is is a reflection on the first on the first problem. That's to say, the lack the the inability to uh, uh, to insert sort of royal administration into the uh, to the plantations and colonial law is kind of is reflecting that that inability um, and so you know there are only a few cases um, over the course of the 18th century where a, a planter will actually get drawn before a a, a colonial official uh, and, and called to answer for um, his or her treatment of a of a of a slave but I think it's those instances that um, that uh, again, sort of reveal what the administrative ethos and what the, what the problems of governing this colony are. So I think, I think one has to distinguish between um, what is actually happening on the plantations um, and what the law is aspiring to do, but not in order to say that one of these matters and the other doesn't, but in order to understand what their relationship is. Because I think, you know, the law, the law clearly does matter. I mean, it is, it is, uh, it is a mandate that the colonial officials are given to uh, to enforce, and when they develop policies for the colony as a whole, they are they are drawing upon uh, they are drawing upon and trying to enforce that mandate. Um, so I think that's I think that's one way of, uh, of, of I think that's one way of thinking about the problem. Um, Another another way of thinking about it is is uh, to say that um, administrators uh, were also uh, planters themselves, at least uh, it, until uh, early in the 18th century. I mean, there's a, a regulation passed, I think, in the seven, early 1720s that prohibits uh, administrators from owning plantations themselves, and um, you know that that's another one of these laws that was sort of more respected in the in the breach of it. Um, so you know, planters are not. Uh, 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 planters and administrators are not a mutually exclusive group. They're 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 quite um, they're quite related uh, to one another. Um, in some cases, they are the same people, and therefore, it's not surprising to see that the way that these administrators think in terms of a kind of strategic governance of slavery is also, in some sense, the way that uh, some planters, at least, think about um, the administration of slavery themselves. And so. You know, at certain moments, in particular the 1788 Lejeune case that I write about, um, you can see that the planters themselves, the quote-unquote kingpins of the of the plantation order, are are themselves seeking to enforce um, a version of this this code noir vision of uh, of slavery in which the planter cannot be, uh, as you put it, an, an absolute uh, an absolute authority 
um, but has to kind of participate in the collective action problem here. And the collective action problem is if everybody does what he or she wants to do on their own, it's going to cause problems for um, for the for the plantation order as a whole. And this is sort of economics lingo, but I think I think there's a version of this going on in the law of slavery in um, in 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 San Domingue, and it, and it creates some kind of difficult. It creates some paradoxical incentives um, and reactions on the part of those involved in the whole process. Well, and that might be a good place to talk about the Lejeune case. So you, you discussed Nicholas Lejeune, uh, who he comes up uh, on trial for being overly brutal towards his enslaved workers and right on the, the eve of the revolution. And so can you just say a little bit about sort of how that case comes to trial and sort of how it, it, it connects to this idea about a regulatory process over brutality? Yeah, the Lejeune case, uh, 1788, is the prosecution of a master for the, the torture of, uh, well, initially for the torture of two female slaves, and then it turns out that there were a whole series of other abuses going on at this plantation that preceded the, the, the particular uh, owner in question. Um, but finally, in 1788, the, the, um, the, 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 the Conseil Supérieur see an opportunity to kind of to kind of clamp down on this problem, it's not it's not an accident that this comes in 1788 um, at a time when there is uh, there are uh, administrative proposals for the reform of slavery. The abolitionist movement is just getting off in France and Britain and elsewhere, um, and you know your your uh, the the French monarchy itself is at a time of uh, is at a time of potentially um, seismic reform, um, and so. Uh, uh, largely as a result of uh, these two women slaves who escape from their plantation um, and and take up a provision of the code noir that permits them to bring a complaint to a, a court official against their master, um, they uh, they succeed in having uh, in having a a complaint issued and the prosecution commences of Nicolas Lejeune for the torture of of a number of slaves on his plantation. Um, and the the story of the of the case is not so much the um, the legal prosecution itself, but how the planters um, react to the, the the prosecution once initiated, and that you know it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting legal tussle. Although, so far as I'm aware, no actual lawyers are involved, but the planters act as their as their own lawyers, and the defendant makes the kinds of arguments about um, the code noir that had been made you know since the early 18th century. Namely, if you if you permit slaves to uh, to uh, to um, assert claims against their masters. You're going to produce an anarchic uh, society in which property uh, relations no longer govern. Um, And then on the other hand, an argument made um, by other planters uh, in a brief that they submit to the court is that um, these these particular masters, uh, the Lejeune, have been causing trouble for all of us. And it's about time that, that something be done about it. And so, you know, right there you see again that that divide that I was talking about within the planner within the planner community. Um, it's, it's a fascinating case, about 60 manuscript pages in the in the French colonial archives, and the arguments kind of go back and forth. Eventually, he is uh, he is convicted at the trial court level, and then on appeal, um, it looks like at the very last minute. Uh, thanks to the intervention of either the planter himself or somebody very friendly to this particular defendant, um, they get one of the decisive votes on the on the high, on the Supreme Court in Saint Domingue uh, to switch his vote. So I think four, three to four, it wasn't four to three. Um, the the decision is made not to pursue the prosecution any further, um, and 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 and, uh, and and the case more or less ends there with the defendant uh, having fled. 
uh, as a uh, as a as a fugitive uh, from justice, in effect. Um, and I use it just to kind of unpack the, the nature of uh, uh, the state of the Code Noir at the very end of the old regime, uh, about a year before the French Revolution begins to um, begins to undo the long-established uh, um, uh, 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 practices for for um, for interpreting the uh, interpreting the Code Noir. Well, and, and the case really gets that idea that that there's some attempt at, at regulation, or that there's certainly a, an anger by the, on the part of many planters that this would be uh, an incursion on their domain on the plantation. And then the other side of that is this issue of manumission, which you sort of covered earlier in the book. Um, and manumission is also kind of a tense side of exchange, um, both between planters and also colonial and, and imperial officials as well. And so could you describe how manumission becomes this flashpoint for the debate around how slavery is supposed to run and, and what the colony is supposed to look like? Yeah, that's a good question, Dan. I mean, there's a parallel here between the between planter brutality, which has this double this double edge. Uh, planter brutality, on the one hand, is necessary to impose discipline. On the other hand, it creates the potential for um, for subversion. And I think that manumission really um, has a similar double edge to it. On the one hand, it is a way of, uh, you know, as Orlando Patterson has put it, of kind of relieving pressure on on the on the on this. It's a it's a release valve on the slave society. Um, it's an incentive for slaves to conform themselves to the day to day rules that govern a particular plantation, with the hope that they'll be rewarded with their freedom. Um, at the end of the day, or in the Spanish in the in the Spanish context, w- with the hope that they can buy their their uh, buy their freedom, because freedom was available for purchase under the Spanish law of slavery, but not under the French uh, or or British laws of slavery. Um, so there there is a there is a there is a positive incentive, um, but then there is also a negative threat that is associated with manumission, and that threat is that if you if you free too many of these slaves, um, you have a community of free people um, who are in close proximity with their uh, enslaved brethren, um, and I think I think that's I think that's the key. And I was the assumption is that the freed person remains um, re- remains attached to um, the the enslaved community, um, whereas we know in the case of San Domingue that many free people of color went on themselves to become slave owners, particularly in the South, where uh, where they owned and managed uh, 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 coffee. Um, and indigo plantations, as John Gar- John Garrigus has shown in his book before Haiti, um, and so you know there there are there are there, there's there's a complicated uh, pro- I mean I think manumission gives rise to a number of complicated social dynamics, but the key one is this idea that you need it on the one hand because if everybody is a slave, then nobody has an incentive to remain a slave, and on the other hand, you can't you can't use too much of it um, because. Um, an overly robust population of freed slaves um, is itself a bad example to set for the enslaved community, and you can see how and you can see how that worry plays itself out in all kinds of ways, from regulations that that uh, are, are designed to prevent free people of color from uh, communing in the taverns of the, uh, you know colonies towns and you know drinking and gambling and playing cards and so on late into the night. Um, so the, the free people of color carry a double burden. They carry the burden of not being entirely free, because even though freed from slavery, they are prohibited from engaging in the full range of activities that uh, that uh, whites, whether poor or, or rich, are able to pursue in Saint Domingue. Um, 
but they are also under this burden of having, uh, in a sense, to answer for the problems of um, of a of a slave society in which discipline is inevitable, um, in in which um, uh, in which you have this constant tension, uh, uh, this constant anxiety about whether or not the slave revolt um, is going uh, eventually to um, to unfold. And I would say that that. As I, you know, as I was reading over the documents uh, while doing the research for the book, that seemed to me to be, um, in a sense, the central problem. Uh, if you will, it's the Haitian Revolution before the Haitian Revolution. It is not an actual revolt. There are actually very few um, slave revolts in a sort of, in, if you sort of take an empirical approach to this and you look for actual slave uh, uh, revolts in Saint-Domingue, I think you find three, four, or five of them over the course of the 18th century, and, and David Gagas has, has tracked those. But the the problem of the slave revolt before the Haitian Revolution is not actually a, an empirical problem. It's a problem that exists in the minds of everybody who governs the society, and also in, in the minds of the slaves and free people of color themselves, um, because they too are responding to a lot of these uh, a lot of these situations. So I guess I guess uh, one of the things the book was was uh, was hoping to do was to show how this problem of the imagined slave revolt could actually be a major one in a time of slavery um, itself. That it is not simply a problem of the revolutionary era or of the age of emancipation. It's a problem of the age of slavery itself. Um, and, um, and and the book is designed to show the role of that problem um, as uh, as a problem for Colonial administration, and as a result of of uh, of the struggle that took place over it, therefore also a problem for the revolutionary process. Um, and there, you know, there we get into the latter part of the book, which I don't know if you want to enter into that now. But you know, that's that is the that is the other claim that's made here is that um, these these conflicts that unfold over the course of the colonial period, roughly 1685 to 1780s, um, they don't just go away in 1789. The Code Noir is not repealed in 1789. It's, it remains in force. Um, and, uh, and, um, and so what happens then in those, in those early revolutionary years, um, I think, uh, needs to be understood as a story of a slave society that is, that is gradually responding to a number of new influences, some of which coming from outside of the colony, some of which are coming from inside the colony, most notably the slave, the, the free people of color uprising um, in the north of Saint-Domingue, and the and the and the great slave uprisings of the early early 1790s. Those events really change the debate over the Code Noir, um, and they they make it radically different, but not unrecognizable. That is to say, you can still see that worries over how to discipline slaves and uh, concerns about what manumission represents. For the future of this slave colony, um, those worries still uh, shape how people are thinking um, uh, in the early 1790s. After uh, after uh, the the name of the game has been changed, so to speak, by by these by these uprisings. Well, yeah, and maybe this is a good chance to to kind of get into the details of the revolution. But but before that, I just want to maybe ask one more broad question about this. Um, you know, you're really trying to show that. Um, Enslaved Dominicans had more connection to the law than we might previously have felt, and and so maybe before we get into the actual details of the revolution itself, um, how much access did enslaved people have to the law? Um, I mean, you, you note that even though there's this code noir, which is supposedly 
going to be out there to to essentially improve the relationships between owners and slaves. Um, that doesn't necessarily get employed in the frequency that you would expect or you would hope. Um, but was there a chance for enslaved people to actually use the law um, to their benefit at all? Because I think that kind of ties into your sense that the law was central to how the insurgents thought about what this uprising initially was. Yeah, there is, um, you know, there's a great famous uh, 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 article by E.P. Thompson, um, The Moral Economy of the English Crowd, um, that, you know, scholars of slavery have, have, I think, been using in recent years to think about how slaves and other disenfranchised persons thought about law, about formal structures of governance. Um, and I think that there's an, there's a, there's an entirely other book to write. Uh, Dan, uh, along these lines here, that is that is only suggested by by my book, and I, I th- uh, that's to say, I think there are actually very few formal sort of um, legal uh, invocations by slaves, and I, I think I, I think I found most of them, if not all of them, there may be a few more that are you know, you know creeping around in the archives, um, and those those incidents those incidents incidents are important, but I think they are important because they point to this other way of engaging with the law that you might call a kind of moral economy of slavery approach, you know, here relying on, on Thompson. And so um, what, what are some of the elements of that? Um, a sense that the king, a sense that the king stood for the slaves, wanted to protect the slaves. So um, you could call this royalism, but I like to think of it as a kind of code noir, a code noir value, which is that the king stands with us. We see this with peasant uprisings in old regime Europe, England, France, everywhere. Um, in the Caribbean, it's slaves. Um, and why does he stand with us? Well, he stands with us because there's this document out there called the Code Noir, which, while slaves may not be able to cite a verse and chapter, they are generally aware that there are things that you're not supposed to do. Um, and I think that's the awareness that you see kind of break out in some of the, in these rare instances where, in fact, slaves uh, do invoke you know, the, the, the provisions of the code noir that, that allow them to bring a, a complaint. Um, but as I say, there, there, would, there would be a whole other book to write about this, this, um, this sort of informal engagement with, uh, with slave law in the 18th century. Natalie Davis has written quite nicely about this um, in the case of, of Curacao. And there's a lot of work kind of in the revolutionary era in the 19th century and beyond that, that talks about sort of vernacular understandings of the law of slavery. Um, but I, I think it would be I think it'd be really interesting to see what what such a project would look like for, you know, one of the old regime slave um, colonies. And, um, you know, I think I think that book is is yet to be um, to be written. But um, but that's so that I think that's probably the way to go. Um, I think there's probably a limit to what you can do with the actual uh, with the actual legal documents. I think probably this sort of study would have to rely more on plantation records than I than I used. And the plantation records are kind of dispersed, you know, sort of all over France and perhaps some in Haiti also. But they're in different they're in different private uh, and and local departmental collections in France. Um, records that are attached to particular plantations that would show, you know probably through planner correspondence, how um, slaves may have been uh, articulating, invoking, expressing this moral economy of slavery. Paul Cheney at the University of Chicago is working on a really interesting book that looks at, it's a micro history of a, of a particular plantation in cul-de-sac in, in Saint-Domingue. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's the kind of work that we'd really need to, 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 to push the ball further in this area. 
So how, how then to get to the revolution itself, um, because you really are trying to paint a through line from the, the old regime to the Haitian revolution. Um, so in what ways is the code noir still invoked uh, before and during the revolution by both free people of color who have their own little mini uprising and then also uh, the enslaved insurgents? Yeah, the, so the documents are, 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 are more uh, articulate uh, with respect to the, what the free people of color do than with respect to the slaves. Um, but I think the basic story can be made out um, in both cases. Free people of color invoke Article 59 of the Code Noir to say that, um, as indeed it said, that once you free a slave, that person is entitled to the same immunities and franchises as a, a, as a, a native-born subject of the king. Um, that's an article, of course, that was never really enforced in Saint-Domingue at all during the colonial period. And so its importance b- becomes that of a way of shaming the National Assembly. Um, uh, at the beginning of the revolutionary era into living up to a certain ideal. Now, it's shaming because the ideal was established not by the Revolutionary Assembly itself, but by this, this, this very old piece of, 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 of legislation that was put out by Louis XIV in 1685. And so Julien Raymond is really quite brilliant in how he, in how he makes use of this. Um, so, uh, but he's brilliant for another reason also, I think, which is that it's really, I think, impossible to underestimate just how much, uh, uh, just how, um, how, how much uh, condemnation was directed at the free people of color who, uh, who, who began to demand the enforcement of these ideals in, in 1788, 89, 1790. Um, and so, you know, thinking about how to articulate such a campaign you know, you've got a couple of options uh, by this time. One, you can make a kind of natural rights-based argument, simply say, look, this is my God-given right, perhaps, or my human right, um, and I want you to enforce it. Um, you can try to invoke the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen as of, uh, you know, August 17, uh, as, of, as of the promulgation of the, of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. And there is some effort to invoke that document as well. But there is also... I wouldn't necessarily say more prominently, but certainly equally prominently, um, conspicuously, this reliance on the on the law of slavery, um, and, and it was and it was part of the law of slavery. It's, it's an original article of the Code Noir that is that is helping to drive this debate. So the point is that if you are going to innovate, and that's the term that was used to the uh, to describe these uh, folks who wanted to reform. Um, to introduce changes into the system as of the revolution. You need an authority to rely on. There's only so many you can rely on, but there is an interesting kind of range within that, within the, within the possible choices. And, and what's really interesting is that, and then how these things get combined, um, and, and, and used to really push the case forward. So Article 59 of the Code Noir is the key one for free people of color. Not the only one, but it is the major one. And, uh, and so then on the part of the slave insurgencies, um, the, um, the operative provisions are those banning the torture and brutalization of slaves. And there are only about, I would say, four documents, I think, something like four, um, one of which may be a forgery, but I don't think is. But the case has been made that it, 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 it is likely a forgery. Um, but in any case, there are three other documents. These are letters between the insurgent, the leaders of the insurgent camps in 1791-92 um, to the uh, first civil commission sent by the French legislature to 
um, to uh, resolve the so-called troubles of Saint-Domingue. And, and one of the arguments that's made in those letters is that, um, you know, we are seeking to end a long trail of, of abuses, um, so to speak, in the administration of slavery. Um, and, um, and we're not going to put down our weapons until this kind of stuff ends. Now, it, it turns out to be a really complicated problem because um, what is the objective of the slave insurgent camps at this time? Is it simply to end uh, brutalization on the plantations or is it something uh, more than that? I think, it, I think it is clearly more than that. I think more than that is the correct answer to that question. Um, but in arguing for the more than that, um, there, is this, there, is, there is this attention paid to kind of the interim problem, if you will, of the, of the, of the disciplining of slaves. And I think, you know, you can, you can understand what the context is here. I mean, the, these slave insurgent camps are not expecting an immediate end to slavery that has been, you know, in existence for more than 100 years, right? So the idea that we're just going to wake up tomorrow and be free people, I think that's not part of their vision. Um, and because it's not part of their vision, they have to think about what, um, what a new plantation order, a reform plantation order will look like. And it's not just them, the slave insurgencies, the the representatives who were sent from France, Santonex and Polverell, in the, in the later civil commissions, um, they have to enact a version of, uh, of reform um, that, uh, that will include a new plantation order. And, and, and in fact, they actually adopt wholesale many of these earlier provisions of the Code Noir into their, into their, uh, into their ordinances, their, their plantation management ordinances. That process eventually becomes what we call abolition, um, which is a bit of a misnomer. Because what you're really talking about is uh, a, a process of reforming um, the plantation order that eventually will include, yes, um, a, uh, a, a, uh, a wholesale, um, full-scale manumission of the slave communities of Saint-Domingue. Um, and it's, it's something that's undertaken in a context of military rivalry between Britain, France, and Spain for control of the territory of Saint-Domingue. Um, and in that sense, it's part of a search for manpower. But it is also a process that, um, that, uh, that again, reflects this, this sense that, well, what we're looking at is not, again, a state of, uh, of kind of um, unmitigated freedom, but rather some new version of the plantation complex in which there will be greater autonomy for the slaves. Um, there will be a lessened role for plantation owners. Many of them are, uh, are, 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 have fled the colony, but not all of them have um, at this point. And, and many of them are looking to return still to Saint-Domingue. They have the hope that their exile in Philadelphia or New Orleans or Charleston is only temporary um, and that France will succeed in, 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 in bringing things under control. So that's, I think that's the context in which um, what we call abolition unfolds in Saint-Domingue. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, an invalid term, but it's, I don't think it's what we, you know, commonly associate with, what, uh, with abolition. Um, all that's to say, um, the, the process of ending slavery, I think, bears a, bears a great deal of relationship with the, the nature of the institution that was being abolished, is the way that I like to put it. So you want to understand abolition, you have to understand um, the thing that is being abolished, and therefore you have to understand how slavery was, was defined at the time. Um, it was defined as a set of restrictions on what planners can do, um, and uh, in a sense, abolition then becomes a way of loosening certain restrictions and keeping in place others. 
And I think that's, I think that's what freedom looks like in San Domingo in the 17, and, and from an administrative point of view in the 1790s. And you sort of stop, I mean, you, you do a little bit of talking about how the revolution unfolds and how it eventually becomes this desire for full scale emancipation, but, but you're really just concerned with kind of showing this continuity across, again, the 17th and the 18th centuries. And I think that's one of the things that I found really exciting about the book is, um, you know, if you're not an expert in the details of the Haitian Revolution, which is a very complicated series of events, you just sort of know, okay, well, enslaved people rise up because they don't like their slavery and they try to take back their freedom. And what you're really showing is, is in some ways how measured that process was, especially in the early months and in the first couple of years, really. And it, it unfolds out of this long durée of having a sense of the law, having a sense of what that relationship between master and slave is supposed to be like. Um, and it gives, in some ways, uh, a much stronger agency to what the insurgents were trying to do in a certain way. It wasn't just this kind of blind rage. Right. It really had a very right. measured political aspect to it. I think that's well put, uh, Dan. In fact, if I, if I were re- re- rewriting the book now, I would use that formulation that you just <laughs> used right there. I like that a lot. Yeah, and I think it is about... It is a way of a way of recovering a more complex sense of agency, or at least a sense that violence was not the only means of the revolution. You know, so that in addition to trying to show that the revolutionary period is not the only period um, uh, relevant to understanding this long process of, of emancipation from slavery, it's also about showing, you know, what are the ele- the I wouldn't use the term nonviolent, but I would use the um, the phrase perhaps means other than violence that were used and, and law, you know, which we associate as kind of the, the opposite of violence, but in this context is really very, very closely connected to um, the, um, the methods of violence and sentiment, I think is, is an important, uh, is an important um, factor in how the abolition process um, unfolds. It's probably an important factor at all times, but certainly in, in, in this context right here. Um, and that I think that's another way of uh, in which, in a sense, this moral economy of slavery comes comes to bear on on the Haitian revolutionary process. Um, so I think you know if you want to kind of talk about this in terms of the methods of legal history, um, I think that I think the lesson here is that it's not really about the doctrinal legacies of the law of slavery, uh, but rather um, it is about. Um, how a, an imagined version of what the law of slavery represents um, can come to inform a process by which um, slavery uh, is is overcome, um, is abolished, and um, and and there I think the Haitian Revolution um, poses a a great example. Um, it is a great example of how you can take a text like the Code Noir. Um, which in so many ways is designed to shut off opportunities for uh, disenfranchised persons. And you can, you can manipulate the, uh, the outer edges of that text. Um, and you can use it um, not just by itself, because things have to happen in order for you to use this document. And things do happen. Slaves do rise up. I mean, they physically stand up, they rise up, and they revolt. Um, that's indispensable. Uh, you, you don't get the end of slavery in San Domingue without that happening. Um, but I think you you don't also you also don't get the Haitian Revolution without the law of slavery in San Domingue. It's just it would be a different revolution, um, and it could have been a different revolution. That's true, and it could have had a different outcome for San Domingue. But the Haitian Revolution that we got is a Haitian is a revolution in which it looks like the law of slavery played this role. 
as I say, there there are other there are other uh, there are other factors that that came into play, and even within the law of slavery, um, there are other traditions that um, that were invoked um, and that were important. And one in particular would be the law of the law of of property, um, uh, as reflected in the Code Noir. So there there are a number of articles that 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 um, that govern this, and that. You know that's clearly an important part of the law of slavery. It's sort of, I think, what we think of when we think of slavery. We think of the ownership of, of persons as property. Um, and you know, as I say, you could pursue uh, a whole other um, a whole other approach to this problem by looking at the property dimensions of the of the code noir. I, I think I address those mostly indirectly because I, I think they're implicit in all in the in the criminal law tri- cases. They're implicit in the manumission cases as well. But it certainly is a theme that um, that that um, that one would want to, that would, one would want to explore when thinking about you know how um, how slavery comes to be um, undone. At what point do people really stop thinking of other people as property? Um, is a is a is an interesting question. Um, if indeed they ever did in the first place. Um, but at what point does the property uh, does the property rule actually come to an end? And I think in in the case of France and Saint Domingue, it's it, technically it's not until eighteen twenties um, with the um, with the uh, with the um, you know with the recognition of Haitian independence. But even then, the 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 condition of Haitian independence is that Haiti paying indemnity to um, to the former slave owners, right? So that that reflects, uh, I guess, an idea that you know we still see you as property, and if you can satisfy our property claims, well, at that point, then we will acknowledge your your um, your independence. So um, you know, I think I think in in a sense, the, the Code Mar is still at work in the 1820s, if you will. Um, because because that that was that was a major claim of planners throughout the 18th century that the code noir makes you property and um, and uh, if you're going to have a revolution fine but at least uh, at least indemnify us for our property claims so I think you know <clears throat> I think it's an interesting question whether or not this property claim was ever was ever really surrendered um, and at what point that Really begin to begin to fail. Um, I'm not sure. I think that's one of the great questions of kind of modern race relations, you know. Um, but in any case, uh, it, it's certainly an important one in, in Haiti's context. Well, and that's, that's maybe a good place to, to get our conversation wrapped up here. Um, I, I hope I'm not really missing anything. There's such a lot of great detail in here, and, and uh, as someone who, who does a little bit of legal work in my own research, I just found it so fascinating. Um, but, but I'm wondering if, if there are any new projects you're pursuing right now after kind of being a couple of years past the book? Yeah, no, I am. Uh, I better have is one way of putting that, but <laughs> I am I am hard at work right now on a on a new book, which actually does start in Saint-Domingue, although it doesn't end there, but it's a new book about the French uh, and the British East India companies in the 18th century, and it's about conflicts over the monopoly authority of these of these large Indies trading companies. And the first such revolt that I look at it unfolds in Saint Domingue in the 17, early 1720s and the years after the Mississippi Bubble crashes. Um, there is a there is a revolt in Saint Domingue that that really helps to begin to put an end to the French Indies Company in the Atlantic world, and afterwards they turn to India. And uh, that's part one. The second part has to do with the uh, British East India Company uh, and the American Tea Crisis, uh, you know, a revolt that's, that's famous to us in these here parts. 
And then the uh, the third section um, is about the, the French Revolutionary crackdown on the monopoly authority of the, of the French Indies Company. So that, that's the story from 1789 to about 1794. Um, so it's uh, still an Atlantic project. It, it does, uh, it, but, and it begins in Saint Domingue, but it doesn't end there. Although there's an interesting Haitian connection at the end, which I think will go into my postscript, um, which is about the role of the Haitian Revolution in the uh, in the British East India Company's uh, expansion at the end of the 18th century. So it, it turns out that as a result of the Haitian Revolution, the global indigo industry kind of migrates from the Caribbean, where it was rooted in Saint-Domingue, uh, to Bengal in, uh, in India. And the British East India Company really spearheads this reorientation, and they're taking advantage of the, of the vacuum that the Haitian Revolution created. And um, and and so indigo goes to India, and from there it remains until the end of the 19th century. Um, so um, I'm, I'm really kind of uh, more interested these days, uh, increasingly interested um, in sort of these what we now call the two Indies, or the relationship between the two Indies, but the, the, the Caribbean and the and the East Indies. But there's an example of, of that relationship. So that's what I'm doing now. Well, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to reading about that. Um, and this book, uh, I think, for anyone that's interested at all in kind of slave history, it's such a great kind of refreshing look at a part of the history we don't tend to look at that often and sort of how the law interacts with these questions of slavery. So um, thanks so much for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, too. Thank you so much, Dan. All right. Bye-bye.